There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. the small little connections that we have with people throughout the day, even during a time like this with COVID, in those encounters of, you know, passing people by in the street, of getting your groceries, there are these opportunities to kind of make eye contact, smile, connect, um, to treat one another as human beings. Like, you know, you see them and they see you. Even those minor interactions, those little connections can really be powerful sources of meaning. And when people leave them, they kind of feel lifted up by that moment of belonging. Hello, and welcome to the Not Perfect podcast with me, your host, Poppy Jamie, the founder of award-winning mindfulness app, Happy Not Perfect. This show is about giving you a pause to nurture and nourish your mind, body, and soul. Each week, I speak to world experts, authors, scientists, and inspirational leaders to share their wisdom and advice so we can all live better from the inside out and reach our full potential. I hope you join me on the journey. Hello, everyone. It's nearly the end of the year, so I hope you're taking some time to rest, reflect, and look after yourself. This week's guest is Emily Asfahani-Smith, the author of The Power of Meaning, an international bestseller and has been translated into 16 different languages. In 2017, Emily gave a TED talk called There's More to Life Than Being Happy, which was based on her book and it's been viewed over 9 million times. Through her writing, Emily explores psychology, philosophy and literature to write about the human experience why we are the way we are, and how we can find grace and meaning in a world that is full of suffering. It was an honor to have Emily on the podcast, and I hope you enjoy our chat. What's a quote that you return to often? So um, I know that your audience 
is really interested in mindfulness. And so this quote might uh, resonate with them. It's by Yeats, uh, uh, William Butler, Butler Yeats, the Irish poet. Um, it's just a beautiful quote. He says, we can make our minds so like still water that beings gather about us that they may see their own images and so live for a moment with a clearer, perhaps even with a fiercer life because of our quiet. So I just love that quote because I think it it shows like the effect that you can have on someone else just by simply being. So true, so true. Thank you for sharing that. What's a life lesson you've been reminded of recently? I think, you know, just the importance of maintaining contact with friends and family. I think before COVID, I took it for granted, like calling my friends and, you know, I I live in Washington, DC and a lot of my friends are in New York and I would usually be in New York at least once a month for work. And so now that is not, you know, part of my life, obviously I'm not traveling. And so really making an effort to kind of call friends, um, Zoom with them to speak with family. Obviously, like with the pandemic, during the periods of lockdown, social isolation and loneliness are rising, you know, and then so it's just, I think people feel lonelier and yet they, this is the moment when we need connections the most, but it feels harder than ever to almost have them. But these technologies do allow us to connect with people, but it just requires more effort. Yeah, effort is definitely, definitely the word there. So I usually ask everybody how they define happiness, but obviously when I was thinking about my questions for you, I thought I can't ask you that because your book is called The Power of Meaning, The True Route to Happiness. So I wanted to ask why is the pursuit of happiness as most of us know it on the surface misleading? Yeah, so I, um, you know, I want to make sure that it's clear that I don't think there's anything wrong with happiness or feeling happy. Obviously, it's wonderful to to be happy and to feel happy. But I think in Western culture, there is an obsession almost with happiness and people kind of obsessively pursue it. And if they don't feel happy, they think there's something wrong with them. And I think that can really absorb so much of our attention and distract us from things that really matter to us and that, you know, experiences of well-being that we can actually control, like having, you know, a meaningful life or pursuing meaningful projects and goals. And so as I was doing the research for my book, I realized that there's a lot of problems with the happiness zeitgeist. It actually makes people unhappy. It makes them feel lonely and it distracts them from this very human need for meaning. It it distracts them from pursuing this human need for meaning. And when people do focus on meaning and kind of let go of the happiness pursuit, they actually experience this deeper form of well-being, a deeper form of happiness, you might even say. Your book explains exactly why this is, and that's why I think I've enjoyed it so much. But before we dive into dissecting meaning, what did you want people to take away um, when reading this book? What was the reason for writing it? I guess it was a couple of things. One, I had come across all of this really fascinating research on meaning, and it wasn't really being discussed in in the media or in the culture the way all the research on happiness was. And it seemed to really uh, be super important. And it seemed to also offer 
something that I think a lot of people are yearning for, which is this kind of need for meaning. I actually think that when people are chasing happiness, what they're actually looking for is something deeper. So I wrote it as a way to kind of speak to that need and help people find ways to fill it. And the other reason I wrote it is because there's so many people out there who I think feel dissatisfied by the happiness zeitgeist or as they live their lives, they're not themselves either focused on happiness or don't always feel happy all the time. Because a lot of times, like the things that we really care about, the things that we do that are important to us are hard and stressful, whether it's raising children or or the work that we do or being involved in in causes or, or volunteering, things like that. It's demanding, it requires sacrifice. And yet we do them in any case. And I think a lot of people who are not necessarily caught up in the happiness zeitgeist or who don't feel happy all the time are made to feel like there's something wrong with them um, if they're not happy. And I wanted to kind of show them that that's not the case, that there is this other path that's really a worthy path to well-being and, and to leading your life that is important and that it's okay if you are on that path and not focused as much on happiness. Couldn't be more relevant for what we're all going through right now. What do you really mean, I guess, by leading a life of meaning? And it'd be really interesting to hear about the four pillars that you identified that contribute to meaning. So meaning is about connecting and contributing to something beyond yourself, whether that's a community, your family, uh, God, um, the work that you do, there's this kind of self-transcendent component of meaning. And, you know, I I talked a little bit already about some of the research that showed that, you know, the, the pursuit of meaning is actually a lot more fulfilling than the pursuit of happiness. And after I encountered that research, the next question for me really became, okay, if meaning is important, if we have this need for meaning, what do we need to do to get meaning in our lives? What I found were these four themes, and they are one, a sense of belonging, two, purpose, three, storytelling or narrative about who you are and where you're going, and finally, transcendence. And I call these the four pillars of meaning because they are kind of what support a meaningful life. When you talk to people, when you look at the research, if they have these pillars in their lives, or at least a few of them, then they feel like their lives are meaningful. I mean, when I was reading through these, I would love to kind of dissect some of them because transcendence, I find transcendence fascinating, I guess, because obviously we're going through such a shift of people turning to astrology, people turning to different sorts of spirituality and kind of formal religion is definitely being challenged in lots of ways. How do you understand these trends? Like when you look at kind of what's happened over the last kind of 10 years and especially maybe accelerated in the past year, how do you make sense of it? I think there's, you know, a few different things going on. I think that, you know, if you take a long view of history over the last couple hundred years, there has been, you know, Western society has been growing increasingly secular. One of the other trends is like people en masse, like moving to big cities, urbanization, it leads to higher individualism, less kind of communitarianism. And so all of these kind of sociological patterns almost um, have created this situation where people are really on their own to figure out, you know, how to find meaning in their lives. And that's daunting because for thousands of years, we've had these structures that have kind of helped us answer this question of, you know, what makes life meaningful. And one of the most important ones is, is religion. And that is no longer 
as much in the public square as it used to be. And for millions of people, it's really not a factor at all. And I think at the same time, things like religion were satisfying some kind of deep psychological need with NS. And I do think that people have not only a need for meaning, but a need for some kind of you know, spiritual engagement with the world or for transcendence, as I talk about it in my book. There have been a lot of, you know, thinkers throughout history that have said that, you know, human beings kind of exist on two levels. There's the normal level of eating and sleeping and doing your jobs and rushing around, running your errands. Um, you know, that, that's the level of the kind of profane world. And then there's a higher level where you connect with the sacred. Um, and you can experience this when you're on walks in nature or when you're listening to beautiful music, when you're meditating, all of these different ways. You know, you mentioned other, other paths, uh, you know, astrology or looking up at the stars. I think that all of these different ways are, are methods that people kind of satisfy that need for transcendence and for the sacred within them. And when it's not being satisfied within that traditional context of religion, which used to provide all these portals to transcendence with prayer, meditation, mm -hmm. music, when it's not being satisfied there, people find other ways to satisfy it. Yeah, it's really, really, really fascinating. And in your book, you talk about why uh, positive psychology became such an important field. And I'd love to discuss this for a moment, because as you quite rightly write, none of us had an education that taught us how to lead a meaningful life. Mm -hmm. And I'd love for you to kind of share more about that. Yeah, it is. It is interesting because, you know, we go through school and there's so much emphasis on getting good grades and, and figuring out a career and one day having like a nice home and all this. And those are really important things to be worried about for sure. But maybe the most important thing to be worried about is, you know, what makes your life meaningful and, and how, you can lead a meaningful life because at the end of the day, if you don't have a sense of what makes your life meaningful, we know from so much research, um, you, you know, people are more likely to feel depressed and anxious. So I think that was, that was and is the situation for a lot of people. And when positive psychology emerged as a field in, in, you know, the late nineties, early two thousands, it began answering some of these questions for people. Uh, it began kind of using the method of, you know, scientific investigation, imp empirical research to ask and begin to answer questions about, you know, what is a meaningful life? How can we have, you know, happy, healthy relationships? Where do, do things like wisdom and creativity come from? All of these meaningful and positive aspects of human experience that weren't really being studied before, um, all of a sudden positive psychology shined its light on them. And I think it's really, really made a difference for people. I mean, there are so many books that have become bestsellers, articles that have gone viral, grounded in positive psychology research. And I think in a way, positive psychology is helping to fill in that role that religion once played in people's lives to kind of give them some direction on these life issues. I think one of the things around purpose and meaning is it makes people feel a bit overwhelmed. And I think... Uh, it makes people feel a bit daunted that how am I going to find a job that I have this purpose for and and like you know what's the meaning of life they seem these huge lofty questions and one thing I really appreciated about your book is actually you break this down that your job doesn't need to be this heroic act and you can still lead a meaningful life would you mind like telling us a bit about that further and how the interviews you carried out um, helped you see that? I remember I talked to a hospital cleaner 
uh, who was part of this bigger study on meaning at work. And I, I had the chance to interview her and she said, um, you know, day to day, what her job is, is, you know, mopping the floors and cleaning bathrooms and things like that. But she said, you know, my purpose isn't being a janitor. My purpose is healing sick people. So she was able to kind of see something bigger in the work that she did, aside from just the day-to-day tasks, you know, grinding out the day-to-day tasks, she was able to connect what she did to something bigger. You know, when I talked to parents, like so many of them said, a huge sense of purpose for me is raising my children. Um, I remember coming across a study of women in Mexico working at factories, and many of them had a sense of purpose in their work because their work allowed them to support their families, to bring home an income that was able to support their families. So it's not like you have to find that, you know, perfect, meaningful job or, you know, go to a mountaintop in, you know, India and find a guru. There are all these ways around us that we can find meaning. And, you know, including by the way, um, and I talk about this in my chapter on belonging, the, the small little connections that we have with people throughout the day, even during a time like, like this with COVID, in those encounters of you know, passing people by in the street, of getting your groceries, there are these opportunities to kind of make eye contact, smile, connect, um, to treat one another as human beings. Like you, know, you see them and they see you. And there's research showing that even those minor interactions, those little connections can really um, be powerful sources of meaning. And when people leave them, they kind of feel lifted up by that moment of belonging. I actually, this brings me to a quote that I loved um, that you wrote and you say, uh, many of us are so caught up in our own lives, so rushed and preoccupied that we acknowledge the people we are interacting with only instrumentally as a means to an end. We fail to see them as individuals. And I just thought this was so relevant for your point that you just made in the fact that we are vulnerable to being in autopilot mode. And then actually it links to this idea of like belonging you know, we kind of expect for other people to make us feel like we belong, but yet we often miss out on the opportunities that we ourselves have the ability to make other people belong. Yeah, I think that's right. And when the thing is that when you do kind of have, when you are focused on helping to make other people belong, that doesn't just cultivate belonging for them, but it cultivates it for you too. You know, the bond works in both directions. I think it, you know, it, it requires kind of being in the moment, being mindful, because as you say, like, as we rush through life, people are just kind of objects in our field of vision. And we can just kind of run past them or be so focused on what we're doing that we don't notice what's going on around us or are not as engaged in conversations with our loved ones, because we're, you know, we have our email on our mind or this task that we're supposed to do. And so by really tuning in, it can build belonging for that person, because you say, you're basically saying by paying attention to them that I see you, I value you, you matter to me. And then that kind of belonging comes back to you as well, because like, it's kind of this arrow that goes in both directions. And this also brings me to a point that you, um, I think this is in your incredible TED talk as well, but the purpose and power of love in making us feel um, like we belong more and, you know, serving our sense of meaning. And you brought up the most incredible story about your father. And if you don't mind, I'd love you to share it. 
Of course. So, um, you know, uh, several years ago, my father had a heart attack that nearly killed him. And, um, you know, when he was, you know, in, lying in the hospital bed before he was going under for um, emergency surgery, going under anesthesia, um, he uh, kept on uh, repeating our names, my name and my brother's name and my mother's name um, over and over again, like a mantra. And he, you know, he, my, my mom meditated, you know, throughout their adult lives, kind of doing mantra, some meditation. So he kept repeating these names as, as a mantra. And he, you know, he wasn't sure whether he was going to come out on the other side of the surgery. And he wanted those to be the last names that he spoke. And, you know, when I was thinking about that story, it made me realize how like, for him, you know, his family was a source of all of the, you know, different pillars of meaning. You know, he got a sense of belonging by being in his family. You know, it was a source of purpose for him. It, it was in that moment, his why for kind of trying to hang on and living. Um, later on, I mean, he, he, you know, survived. And when he looks back on that experience, the story that he tells himself is that his family is part of what, you know, got him through that. And as I mentioned, like the mantra was kind of a meditation for him. So in that moment, there was also the pillar of transcendence. I'd love to hear more about your childhood growing up in a Sufi house. Um, first of all, I guess it would be helpful, I think, for many of the listeners and myself to hear more about what Sufi uh, means and what core beliefs do you think you took from growing up in this environment? So Sufism is uh, the mystical branch of Islam. And I think some popular touch points for people, um, one is the poet Rumi. Uh, Rumi was a Sufi um, and his poetry is a really nice expression of, you know, Sufi kind of just approach to, to life and spirituality. Um, the whirling dervishes were Sufis as well. So that's kind of another, you know, image that might be helpful to people. Uh, to help them make sense of what Sufism is, but it is, it's the mystical branch of Islam. And like, you know, the mystical branch of all the world's religions, its main concern is helping people kind of turn the volume down on their self, on the ego, so that they can connect to something bigger, to, to you know, to, to God, um, this source of, you know, love that is in the world, but also within them. So if you, if you are familiar, if people are familiar with the poems of Rumi, they're constantly, he's constantly talking about this relationship between the lover and the beloved. And the beloved is, is the person who loves God and the lover is God. So that's kind of, you know, if you read some of his poems that he's talking about, you know, God and spirituality really. And so living in the meeting house, uh, this was in Montreal where I grew up, uh, meant that twice a week, Sufis, uh, these spiritual seekers would come over to our home and they'd sit in this large room on the floor and they would meditate for several hours. And so, you know, meditation is one of these rituals that does take us, has the potential to take us out of ourselves uh, to connect with something bigger. A key part of their practice was loving kindness, which is an idea that I think a lot of us associate with Buddhism, but is central to all the world religions and certainly in Sufism as well. Um, so practicing loving kindness, which is kind of this like radical, you know, form of loving, you know, loving even your, your enemies. It's hard. It's not easy. Um, and another part of the practice was service, you know, so, you know, service in the community, but also just service in our daily interactions with others, like finding ways to be helpful to, to one another. Those are some of the ideas that I grew up with. And 
you know, in the Sufi meeting house, one of the things that I, I think about a lot now is how a lot of those people who came through our door had led hard lives. Um, some of them were refugees from the Middle East where uh, Sufis are persecuted in places like uh, Iran and Saudi Arabia, especially, um, you know, to be a Sufi is considered um, heretical and you could be put to death. In Iran, Sufi houses are bombed all the time. Happiness wasn't super salient in their lives, but they found comfort and peace in this spiritual practice that brought them meaning. Um, so I was surrounded by people who had this focus on meaning and had these clear ways to access meaning, whether it's through meditation, through you know love, through service. And I think that stayed with me as I as I got older. And you know, eventually we moved out of the Sufi meeting house, and it raised some questions for me about you know how do people find meaning um, without kind of a religious or spiritual path to ground them? Is it even possible? And, and so it raised some questions, but also left me with this legacy of really thinking that meaning was an important piece of the human experience and that there were these ways that we, we could get it, you know, like through meditation and things like that. And, and I think, you know, really those kinds of questions led me eventually to studying philosophy and then positive psychology, which is where so much of my uh, the research in my book comes from. I was listening to an interview you did and I thought it was really interesting. You brought up the point of actually the fitness industry, bizarrely, being this portal for transcendence. Mm. Um, and I hadn't really heard a, uh, about it like that before, but I guess I was thinking to myself, yeah, you're so right. The, the fitness has really kind of become a tool for people to experience flow. No, for, for sure. I mean, one of the ways that... Um, that we uh, either can, I think, can tap into this. Well, really, maybe all the pillars, you know, but I'll talk about transcendence first, um, is in some of these classes where, you know, you're moving together, uh, you know, whether it's a dance class or a spinning class or, or whatever, there are these moments of, of collective kind of effervescence. Um, and that is one way to experience transcendence, kind of losing yourself in the group. And a lot of times there's like very intense music playing while that's happening. And there is this synchronous movement. So all of these things that, you know, hundreds of years ago, thousands of years ago, were ritualized as part of kind of religious ceremonies there are elements of them in some of these fitness classes, which I think is really interesting. And I think it's part of why, you know, things like soul cycle are, are so popular. It's because it kind of taps into that. I mean, even the name soul cycle. Um, and I think, you know, also there are other ways that fitness can kind of uh, tap into the pillars. It gives people, some people a community and the sense of kind of achievement, I think can, can bring people purpose as well. Completely. And there's a quote that you also wrote, and I really resonated, and I just thought it's very relevant for this moment in time. And you write, as much as we might wish, none of us will be able to go through life without some kind of suffering. Mm. That's why it's crucial for us to learn to suffer well. And that last sentence, that's why it's crucial for us to learn to suffer well. I mean, it gave me chills. What do you mean by that? You know, suffer. I mean, the Buddhists say like life is suffering. That's the first noble truth. And I think it's just such an accurate description of, of the human condition. You know, the, our culture tells us we should be happy all the time. We should pursue happiness and people get disappointed when they're not, when they're not happy all the time, but really like the expectation that we should be happy all the time is crazy and unrealistic because every day we're dealing with 
minor stressors, major stressors. Um, there are things constantly that are making demands on us. Um, there are kind of the, you know, the small adversities of day-to-day life, you know, conflicts that you get into with loved ones, with, with colleagues, um, then the major adversities that happen to us, losing a loved one, you know, we're all kind of living through this global pandemic right now, losing a job. This is just part of life. And we have to learn how to cope with this suffering, how to manage it. And the research shows that the people who are the most resilient to suffering, who are the, you know, the ones who don't get broken by suffering, by stress, by tragedy, are the ones who have a sense of meaning in life. I write about Viktor Frankl in my book, The Holocaust Survivor, uh, who wrote uh, the beautiful book, Man's Search for Meaning. And Frankl talks about how even in the concentration camps, that there were people there, he said, that they had lost everything, but they still had a sense of meaning and purpose and that this gave them kind of the will to live, to get through every day. And so I really think meaning is so important for that reason, because it does allow us to suffer well, to feel like there's some hope at the end of the tunnel. Completely. And that's why the story of your father so um, resonates so much that, you know, the love we have in our life is a reason enough for us to kind of keep going and get up every single day and, and move through our struggles. And there'll always be a brighter day ahead. We haven't really spoken about storytelling. And obviously, this is so important uh, in terms of the internal dialogue and how that relates to our internal suffering and whether we maybe amplify our suffering more than we need to because of the type of stories we're telling ourselves. Um, what did you find the most common stories people tell themselves? And, and how can you, what should we be looking out for in terms of like our own storytelling? So storytelling is really about the story that we tell ourselves about ourselves, about how, you know, we became the person that we are, about where we hope to go in our lives. And there are kind of two um, dimensions, I think, on which storytelling exists. There's the kind of epic, you know, grand narrative of our lives as a whole, um, you know, who we are, where we came from, where we're going. Then there's the day-to-day experiences of life that we make stories around. Uh, for example, if your you know boss sends you an email uh, with nothing in the subject line and in the body of the email it just says, call me immediately. You know, what's the story that you tell about that? Is it I'm about to be fired or is it, oh, I wonder if he's going to put me on a new project? You know, that so you know our minds are just incessant narrative machines. They're constantly forming a narrative about what's happening around us. And I think a lot of times we don't realize that this is happening. We're just not conscious of this process. And so we assume that the way that our, that we're thinking about the world um, the, is just the way things are when actually it's a story that we're telling. And if it's a story that we're telling, that means if we have dysfunctional beliefs and thoughts about the world and about who we are, we can change that story. You know, the research shows that people who are leading meaningful lives tend to tell stories about their lives and experiences that are defined by love, growth, and redemption. And redemption goes back to this point about suffering we were talking about just a second ago. A redemptive story is one that goes from you know, bad to good, like something bad happens, it causes suffering, but then that bad 
was redeemed by something, whether it's the sense of growth that you had afterwards, um, a relationship that deepened, a newfound purpose. There are a lot of different ways that we can grow through adversity. We choose to tell, we choose, you know, what we include in that story and what we leave out of it. And oftentimes we tell stories that are more negative and hopeful than they need to be because we have this thing in our minds that psychologists call a negativity bias. So when something bad happens to us, we're much more likely to remember it, to be affected by it than when something good happens. If you take a broader perspective on your life and are more objective, um, a more objective observer of your own life, maybe observing your own life the way you observe a friend's life, um, you'll see that there are these acts, there are so many bigger data points to include in that story. And once you do include them in that story, the narrative starts to shift towards something more hopeful. That's really interesting. Thank you for explaining that. Before we go, obviously, we're all going to be reflecting in the coming weeks about the past year we've had. And obviously, a lot of us, it's going to be easy to say things like that was the worst year we've ever had. What's your advice in how we should be reflecting upon this year, given, you know, your research and book on living a life more meaningful? One thing that I I think about a lot, um, as, as I am just trying myself to, you know, make it through this very strange period of history, is five years down the line, 10 years down the line, 15 years down the line, as I reflect back on this year, you know, what is the story that I want to tell about how this year went in my life? Is it that I, you know, succumbed to, you know, my feelings of anxiety and despair? Or is it that I rose above them? Is it that I used all my, all this extra time I have walking around the city, listening to, you know, Spotify or staying at home watching Netflix? Or is it that I did something with that time that, you know, endured and was somehow meaningful to me? And so when I take that perspective, I think it does two things. One, it, it broadens the perspective. So I'm not so myopic, myopically focused on the challenges of the here and now. And, you know, reminds me there's a bigger life here that I, you know, and to take a broader view of it. And it also gets me to think about how I'm leading my day-to-day life right now so that I'm, I'm doing things that I will feel good about, you know, when I am reflecting back down the line. That is such a useful piece of advice to hear because a lot of us are going to be going through that at the moment. And also having that perspective really does then serve as motivation to maybe give you like a push to we can kind of change this year at any point, even if it's on the kind of 28th of you know December, we can have a two, two really good days to finish it off or whatever. And I think that kind of perspective, like just to make the most of your days, regardless of what is happening around you, like really, really vital. Thank you so much for your time. It's just been like, it is so kind of like healing to hear you talk through all of these amazing themes that you go into in so much more detail in the book so it is a it's a perfect gift to be reading over the holidays to kind of calm nerves and uh, put us in a much better frame of mind and and more meaningful 2021 oh thank you so much poppy it's so kind of you to say and it was it was so great talking to you thank you for listening it would be a huge support if you wouldn't mind rating subscribing and sharing this podcast i also would love to hear from you so please find me at poppy jamie on instagram dm me and i would love to hear your thoughts on any of the topics that we discuss 
Download Happy Not Perfect, my app that's designed to boost your mood and help you sleep and give you mindfulness in less than five minutes. It's packed full of science-backed tools and rituals to give your mind the care it needs. Sending lots of love and energy. See you next time. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.